Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been fascinating reading the story involving the Pandora Papers. This is the latest leak of offshore financial records. There's a lot of information to dig into there and questions about how is Canada reflected in this? Are there Canadians? And there's been a few high-profile names kind of attached to this. But what does it tell us about Canada's role in offshore wealth? There's something like almost 12 million documents here from 14 offshore services providers. So what can we glean about Canada from that? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is James Cohen, the Executive Director of the Canadian Chapter of Transparency International. James, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. How much of a role does Canada play in these Pandora Papers? Well, we're digging out the numbers so far uh, as to who is involved in what. But I think, as as you noted, we've got some pretty prominent people involved. And it's just one more chunk of evidence since uh, in the last five years since the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers showing Canada as a hub and has uh, enablers, uh, has people using this global system and also is a location for uh, dirty money to be stashed. In what ways is Canada being used then in this system? Well, we can be a place to stash money. Uh, We saw that mostly in the revelations in the Panama Papers uh, when journalists went digging through those and uh, Toronto lawyer coined the term snow washing uh, to show that enablers were kind of marketing Canada as a place to take their dirty cash and hide it like the or clean it like the pure white snow at the end of the day due to our lack of enforcement on white collar crime and also our our laws that make it easy to disguise the the true owner of a company has anything changed since the panama papers five years ago yeah we have seen change uh it might be a little technical for most people to see but there is some progress happening uh, there's more entities that need to actually conduct the due diligence on who's behind these anonymous companies. So it used to be only the banks. Now, as of this year, it's also the accountants, the real estate agents, uh, my service business, uh, jewelers need to do this. So that's a huge change. And then we saw the announcement this year in the federal budget for a national uh, publicly accessible beneficial ownership registry And that means that people who have been abusing the system in Canada uh, to hide behind shell companies, hopefully we'll see it. uh, We'll see them get revealed. But the timeline's not until another five years till that gets up and running. Right. But there's lots of people clearly, James, who are providing this advice, right, to wealthy individuals. Where's the accountability for that? Yeah, there are. And uh, that definitely needs to be cracked down on. So, you know, we're seeing some of the laws come in. Like uh, if an enabler or somebody who was an intermediary was involved in reckless knowledge, uh, I think is the the legal term for it, 
uh, with money laundering that they can face fines and punishment, although it's disputable to figure out what was reckless knowledge. So there needs to be far more tangible ways to uh, hold people accountable, especially in you know, the legal profession, the accounting profession, the financial profession, who sign off on the documents who make this dirty money uh, legitimate at the end of the day. Right. Do you think like right now, though, or in the last five years, the accountability has generally come from the release of these documents and all of a sudden we can all see, oh, so this is what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. It's really important that we do get these kind of releases of documents. And it's also really important to know or for people to know that there are changes because this is the third massive leak in five years and people can start to feel that, oh, what really changes, you know, the powers that be and those have money will always get their way. And, you know, change is slow and it doesn't come naturally that we've been campaigning for it. Uh, but change does come. Uh, there has been changes globally. There's more movements towards transparency. And each time there's one of these leaks, it keeps the pressure up that, hold on, you can't backtrack, you can't slow down, we need to keep the change coming. I would think it would be a bit of a nightmare for somebody's name to be associated with this. You know, and it comes out that you're the one stashing money because we search through that for familiar names, right? Yeah, and uh, that's definitely nobody wants their name out there, even if, uh, you know, it's not necessarily illegal. There's the, there's the debate between, you know, what's legal in the tax loopholes and then what's clearly illegal. And hopefully even those who have access to all of these intermediaries, they're kind of thinking twice and doing their own due diligence with their accountants and their lawyers and whatnot and saying, look, I don't want to be in one of these uh, huge data dumps. Make sure I'm doing the right thing and that exactly. my money is clean and that I'm using the system appropriately and not abusing it. Exactly. Those seem like simple questions that these people can ask. But Yeah, uh, right? I, mean, so, I mean, so far there's, there's more to come out, but you see you know, Elvis Stoiko comes out and so far the claim is you know, he has no idea. And if you took him on face value, that might be the case. And maybe there's a lot of people who just come into a lot of money who don't know how to manage it. But still, as you say, you know, as these things come out, hopefully they are asking the right questions. Like, I'm not going to show up in one of these data leaks, am I? Exactly. So was there anything in these papers, these latest ones that surprised you? I know one of the things that came out that surprised me was this idea that South Dakota has become very popular to try to hide money. Yeah, and that's the thing. Whenever we think of, you know, we we always say offshore accounts and you wind up thinking about like a tropical island or say the Swiss Alps, but it's a bit of a dated term and a bit of a dated view. We have to really look at this as a global network and a lot of countries around the world really do play a role because they can just make their own jurisdictions a secrecy jurisdiction. In Canada, we are a a hub destination for the money and we're a location for the money to disappear from. So it's really about this global network of dirty money rather than just, you know, tropical islands and Swiss Alps. Right. How quickly, though, does that change, James, right? Like if Canada is in the process of enacting some laws, as you pointed out, uh, that might make this more difficult, does the money just shift somewhere else? Well, that's the good news is that slowly the amount of locations where people would want to hide their dirty money are starting to close. So even some of the most notorious locations like British Virgin Islands or Isle of Jersey or the Cayman Islands, they've kind of under pressure because of these leaks to crack down on their secrecy jurisdictions and and they have passed laws to start up more transparency. 
So with Canada committing to a public registry, we can add more pressure. We can walk the walk and talk the talk, as it were. And so you have less and less jurisdictions where people would want to hide their dirty money. Because at the end of the day, they don't want to put it back in China or Russia, because those are kind of two of of the biggest jurisdictions where the money's coming from, because the government can just arbitrarily take the money there. Right. So if you can crack down on those two big areas, those are the ones that you should keep an eye on. Well, if you can crack down on all the all the the traditional secrecy jurisdictions and make sure Canada and you know places like South Dakota don't fly under the radar because no one suspects them, you know, that is less and less avenues for people to hide their dirty money in kind of rule of law jurisdictions, as it were. So you sound fairly positive, though, that Canada's on the right track. Yeah, you got to stay. You can't. Uh, lean into cynicism or apathy. You got to keep up the pressure and you know, tracking this for five years. Uh, it hasn't all been easy to get the change. We've had to push and we've had to negotiate. And we've had to scream, but things are changing, but we can't let down the pressure. We've got to keep it up. Uh, new minority government coming in where every political party had a commitment to anti-money laundering and cracking down on secrecy jurisdictions, even within Canada. So hopefully we do see some progress out of this minority government. Well, we can always hope. Uh, James, thank you. Indeed. Thank you. James Cohen is the executive director of the Canadian chapter of Transparency International, talking about the Pandora Papers. Yes, there are some Canadian links in there, but Canada is taking steps, not enough, but we're getting there, uh, to not being such a place where people can stash money. And as also pointed out, it's about the advisors. It's about the people who are providing this advice, too. has to be accountability on all levels. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've now gotten the first really extensive review of COVID-19 deaths in BC's long-term care system. It was a review done by seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie. And what that review found is that more care homes should have had rigorous testing for staff and more of them should have had a comprehensive sick pay program and some of the problems could have been avoided. This is the 45-page report that was released yesterday. She outlined seven recommendations, including increasing paid sick leave for all staff, increasing the pool of direct care staff, uh, decreased contracting for direct care services, having more registered nurses, increasing testing, eliminating shared rooms, so too many people in one room, and requiring staff of long-term care to be vaccinated and provide booster shots to residents. So some of that is happening. But let's talk about what we learned from this report. Joining us now is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. What did you think about the report? Well, there's some really good information here and uh, certainly can support many of these recommendations. But as Isabel said, uh, the seniors advocate said yesterday, this isn't uh, the definitive re- review. Uh, it looks at some data and draws some conclusions. But uh, I think uh, she acknowledges that, you know, we need a deeper dive to fully understand all of the factors that led to such a devastating impact of COVID on long-term care residents. Are there parts of the report then that you think, okay, well, maybe that part needs a little more investigating? Well, um, I think we need a deeper dive into some of these issues around contracting out about uh, paid sick leave. I mean, we all recognize that people should have adequate time off uh, when they're ill uh, so that they don't suffer financially for that. I mean, we don't want people coming to work ill. 
But the reality was that people came to work because they didn't want to let people down, uh, because they know there's no one to take their place. We have such a, a crisis in health human resources that there are no nurses, there are no health care aides to come in when people are sick or when they take vacation. So that is something that we certainly agree with our recommendation about increasing the training opportunities uh, to, uh, to have more health care personnel. I think one of the other things that was alarming about this was the, you know, having mandatory staff vaccinations, which I know you were pushing for for a long time. But clearly, we didn't do that soon enough, though, Terry, did we? Because that caused problems. It caused problems. Uh, you know, I think the hope was that people working in healthcare would naturally get the vaccine because they care about the people for whom they look after. And, you know, I guess the assumption was. If there was a tool to keep people safe, they would use it. Uh, but as we saw, there was quite a bit of vaccine hesitancy. And until the mandatory vaccination policy came into place, uh, we really didn't see the uptake that we needed. Uh, we have seen people now start their vaccination program. And uh, Dr. Henry has extended the time uh, uh, so that they can finish their vaccination program. This would have caused a critical shortage of workers next week, Simi, if uh, she hadn't done that. But Yes, uh, we should have started this earlier and then we could have dealt with the hesitancy problem earlier as well. But it's being dealt with now, though, in terms of once it was mandated, it seems like workers are getting the shot. So they are getting the shot to save their jobs. Absolutely. And we see this all over in the United States. Uh, You know, many organizations like Kaiser Permanente went from about 72 percent vaccine uptake to 99 percent. So it really is uh, effective. And uh, we've seen similar kind of reaction here in British Columbia, although it's not consistent around the province. We still have pockets of the province where there's still more hesitancy than than others. Isn't that a bit disappointing, though, Terry? I mean, as you pointed out, they're working with seniors. They're working with the most vulnerable in our population, and that alone wasn't enough to convince them to get the shot. Yeah, we have to remember, Simi, that many uh, people in uh, the long-term care workforce are people that are new to Canada, that may come from cultures that are suspicious of of uh, some aspects of um, medical care, uh, particularly vaccines. And so we have to work closely with them, understand what their concerns are. And Safe Care BC, which is the organization that manages the health and safety aspects of contracted long-term care, are doing a, an extensive education program to work one-on-one with folks who may have uh, some concern about the vaccine. But uh, it's, it's changing for sure, but uh, we're not quite where we want to be yet. And now, of course, staff uh, are concerned about not being eligible for that third booster because we are st- seeing breakthrough infections among uh, care staff. What of the the recommendations that came out of Isabel McKenzie's report there, which ones do you think will be the most challenging to get done? Well, a couple of things. Number one, uh, although BC only has about 10% of our uh, care homes uh, with multiple person rooms, uh, that's going to take a while to eliminate because obviously you have to to build new uh, homes and that will take a, a few years. And then, of course, the health human resource uh, challenges uh, will take a while. You can't just invent nurses and and care aides. They have to be trained. Uh, We have to make pathways available for new Canadians that have some training overseas to be able to come into the workforce here. That's going to take some time. And we've been working hard with the federal government and with the College of Nurses and Midwives to to look at those, uh, those pathways for new Canadians. Uh, 
Um, and uh, we need a new funding model. Now, we are opening up talks with the ministry about funding models, uh, but that's something we really need to work on because I can tell you as a former health minister, no one truly understands how long-term care is funded in the province of British Columbia. So I think we need real clarity and real purpose in a new funding model. Okay, what do you mean by a new funding model then? What should it look like? Well, at the moment, uh, health authorities are block funded and then they determine how much they're going to uh, put towards long-term care, whereas contracted providers are given a per diem or per day amount to look after each individual resident. And that varies uh, from home to home and it's based on uh, the needs of the patient, it's based on the uh, the, the real estate and, and the construction costs uh, that the contractor encounters. Uh, but we really need to look at outcomes. What are we trying to do uh, to make life better for people who are near the end of their life, but they still, uh, you know, this is their home and, and uh, they need to be cared for. So I think we need to look at, at uh, best practices uh, from around the world and start to institute those. Australia has recently completed the Royal Commission, so we need to do a deep dive there. Ontario just finished a, a big study, Alberta the same. So there's lots of models that we need to look at and determine how do we get those outcomes for quality of life uh, and how do we fund that so that it's affordable for taxpayers uh, but uh, gives us the right outcomes. Is this the time, do you think, to make those changes just because we've talked so much about long-term care in the last two years? Absolutely. COVID has you know, shone a big light on some of the uh, problems in long-term care. And I must say that British Columbia generally uh, fares very well uh, versus jurisdictions across Canada. We, you know, we, we did very well in the first wave, not as well in the second wave, but generally speaking, our long-term care program is, I would say, probably the best in Canada, but it can be better. There are models around the world uh, that we need to look to so that we can improve the situation. And I think British Columbians, uh, through this last uh, almost 20 months, realize that uh, we need to invest more in the care for our elders and hopefully there's an impetus to do that. Okay and on the issue of paid sick leave then is this something that long-term care providers would support? Well again it goes with the funding. Uh, We have many of our members that uh, provide paid sick leave at the very highest level Uh, but again it depends on the amount of funding. You can only provide the service um, where there's funding available to, to do that. And 90% of long-term care is publicly funded here in British Columbia, or at least uh, publicly subsidized. So we need to look at that funding model to make sure that employees uh, are treated well, that uh, residents are treated well, and that it's sustainable into the future. Terry, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Not often that you get something at Vancouver City Council watched as closely as this was. But as you've heard, a controversial proposal for citywide residential parking permits and more as part of Vancouver's Climate Action Plan failed last night. And it was actually Mayor Kennedy Stewart who cast the deciding vote to make that happen. Now, he issued a statement right after the vote saying he voted against it because he felt it would unfairly affect lower income residents. So is that the end of it? Or will there be a different version of this coming forward again? Well, joining us now is Kennedy Stewart, the mayor of Vancouver, to talk more about that. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Sammy. How are you today? I am good, thank you. You know, there seems to be a lot of people surprised by how you voted last night. Did your opinion of this proposal change along the way? You know, I, I went into it with an open mind, and I won't deny it was a tough uh, tough decision last night. 
you know, watch the uh, correspondence roll in over the, the last couple of weeks and, and listen to folks yesterday and listen to staff. And in the end, I just thought, um, this isn't the right policy for what we're trying to tackle. And so I think it's my responsibility to, uh, you know, vote the way that I think is important. And it, it may have surprised some people, but uh, uh, that's what I did. I, th- I thought it was unfair to folks who were, you know, lower income, living in basement suites, maybe working jobs that are, you know, manual labor where they need a truck. And I think we can come up with, with different policies, and I've challenged staff to do that. So how is that going to work then? So this isn't the end of it? Would you like to see a different version of this brought forward? No, no. Uh, you know, what it comes down to is that we need to invest in uh, climate change infrastructure. Uh, I think just off the top of my head, I think we need an additional $15 million dollars which is a lot of money for a city because mostly we, we get that, you know, we'd have to raise property taxes to, to make that investment. However, uh, we do have partners that are also committed to fighting climate change, uh, the federal and provincial governments. And like just before the federal election, I secured $20 million from the federal government to, uh, to invest in rainwater collection, that type of thing. So I am going back to Ottawa next week and I'm going to talk to them about, you know, what we what we considered here, what we didn't do, and then the kind of, uh, you know, how can we come forward with partnerships to uh, to get that investment in infrastructure that we need. Right. There's a lot of talk, though, that this would be better served if it were done regionally. So rather than going to Ottawa for this, is there any thought to working with other municipalities for addressing this in a more equitable fashion? Well, my feeling in uh, on this particular policy, if it didn't fly in Vancouver, it, was, it wouldn't fly anywhere uh, so in the region. So I, I think that's... Uh, probably not something that I'm going to invest a lot of time in. I do think, though, that I can talk to other mayors about building more complete neighborhoods, which would, you know, cut down the need for, for cars. So if you densify in the in the areas that are, that are zoned for, for single families and you put commercial, uh, you know, buildings, uh, stores that you can walk to, professional services, dry cleaning, that kind of stuff, then that cuts down the overall need to drive. And so that's really the what I'll be focusing on is is building more housing, you know, a lot of it that folks will be able to afford, but making sure that you can walk or take transit or cycle rather than having to drive long distances. And I think in the end, that will have a much bigger impact than, than the uh, measure that was rejected last night. Right. Was there any part of that, you know, program, that proposal that came forward that you thought, you know, merited a closer look, even the idea of, of the parking permits or some version of that? Yeah, I mean, we do have parking permits in the West End, for example. Uh, they were brought in for a different reason. It's because residents couldn't find anywhere to park. Uh, and that seems like a much more logical way, uh, reason for, to bring in uh, residential permits. And, and actually, it, uh, local residents can initiate that themselves. They can have a local petition uh, to do that. So I expect we'll see more of that. And it's much more organic. Uh, neighbors will talk to neighbors to see how it will affect their street. And then they can... Um, you know, they can already do that. So uh, we get a lot of, when we put rental buildings in neighborhoods, sometimes people say there's nowhere to park. So that would be a consideration too. So, but it's, this to me feel, felt a bit, um, you know, imposed uh, top down. And I think that, uh, look, it's, the times are divided enough. Like we, uh, there's so much stress between people, you know, lots of hyperbole on both sides so what we need to do is just come together as a community and uh, figure our way through this. And we're doing great. I mean, worldwide, we're, we're uh, 
considered uh, one of the leaders on climate change uh, through our building code and other things. And uh, we can continue to do it, just not with this policy. Okay, so there'll be more to come on that. A couple of the things I wanted to ask you about as well. We've heard a lot from local business owners, particularly in the downtown area, about you know their concerns about crime, graffiti. What mm-hmm. I mean, have you heard those concerns, and what are you prepared to do about that? Yeah, we have heard these concerns. I mean, uh, you know, I meet with mayors around the world on this, and lots of downtown cores are facing the same thing because there's less traffic due to COVID. Uh, that is fewer people in office buildings, fewer people in nightclubs, you know, so the the downtowns have a a lot less foot traffic and that, you know, empty streets will uh, often lead to uh, more disorder and people taking advantage. So, you know, we're doing everything we can to get our downtown open faster. And I think you're starting to see that. So I think that will naturally, uh, that will naturally uh, kind of return things to, to the way they were more or less. Uh, but we're also helping merchants along the way. We've uh, put an extra half a million dollars in the graffiti removal, and that is working directly with the business improvement agencies so uh, um, that they, uh, in their local neighborhoods, they can identify a graffiti that needs to be removed, and then we basically pay for it. So we put another half a million dollars into that. Also, the police are shifting. Uh, you know, we have a meeting on this today, actually. As I chair the police board, uh, the police are shifting resources to uh, higher crime areas, uh, which they normally do anyway. But uh, in this case, some of those resources will be targeted downtown. Right. And speaking of the police, I know there was also, you know, in the last 24 hours, we heard the police saying that, you know, that incident where police were called, um, you were in the Yaletown wine store there. They said there was nothing criminal that occurred there. Nothing would be moving forward. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I'd really like just to put the whole thing behind me. I mean, uh, you know, my wife and I and puppy were just in getting a bottle of wine for dinner and somebody just decided to, you know, uh, harass us essentially. And so, um, you know, it, uh, talking to my colleagues uh, from the U.S. that have uh, security details with them 24-7, I mean, I, I don't want that kind of thing here in the city and I'm glad that these incidents are rare. But... Um, you know, I'm just very thankful for the police that they came when I called them. Uh, I thought it was necessary, and, um, you know, we could move on. Has anything like that happened before? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, uh, yeah, as uh, as MP, um, you know, we had to have security systems installed in my offices. Uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline was pretty contentious, and my position on that was pretty clear. So, yeah, threats, uh, um you know, being chased uh, at times, you know, not not nice things. And, right. and, and uh, unfortunately, this is increasingly facing uh, politicians. You see this, uh, you know, around the world, but right here in Canada, unfortunately. And it's a tough time. I mean, COVID has stressed a lot of people out. Uh, it's very uncertain circumstances. But I think we still have to remember that, uh, you know, we're a, we're, we're a country, uh, I think, considered a gentle country, and, and I think that that's, uh, we should have civil debate and in proper forms rather than, uh, you know, getting angry with each other in, in public. That doesn't really solve anything. Right. Okay, so final note then on the parking program vote that happened last night. A lot of people were saying this was inevitable given that it's an election year next year. Did that play into this at all? No, I, I mean, you know, I, I policy professor at SFU for 10 years. I mean, I, you know, I support good policy and I didn't think this one was uh, check the equity tech, you know, box for me. I I do think that I just think in, uh, you know, in 2025, uh, 
the landscaper who drives the pickup truck who buys something a little newer would have to pay a thousand dollars uh just doesn't it just doesn't make it it didn't make sense to me uh you know, uh, folks living in basement suites are, hey, I did it many, many years, uh, you know, you, you don't need extra costs. And there's other ways that we can we can raise funds to uh, to secure this, uh, the infrastructure we need to fight climate change. We're doing it all kinds of other ways. And, you know, partnering with federal and provincial governments is the way to do it. I mean, I've, I've raised over a billion dollars for uh, housing by through those partnerships through the federal and provincial government, us kicking in. I know we can do it on climate change, too, because they want to fight this, too. So uh, let's work with the partners, and that starts next week uh, when I go to Ottawa to uh, talk about priorities there. All right, Mayor Stewart, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, Sohal is back with us now. Now, Roger, you've been talking to a vaccinologist, also great job title, from SFU. Uh, and she tell us what she's been looking into. Yeah, so she sat on a few grant committees for the challenge of working on a pan vaccine. So that's a, a vaccine that would work to prevent all kinds of coronaviruses and hopefully prevent the next pandemic because uh, they're thinking about that now. And 29 international research groups are working on that solution. Um, and I asked her, is it is it possible? Is it even within reach? And she says it is. And the reason it is, is apparently because of the structure of the virus. So we we know the what uh, the coronavirus looks like probably a little too well. I remember seeing it in Halloween costumes last year, yes, <laughs> which was uh, so true. True. That kind of ball with those spikes around it. And it's because of those spikes, those spike proteins um, that they think it's within reach uh, to make a pan vaccine that they would, uh, they need to basically swap those out. They're needed in order, the spikes are needed in order to make um, antibodies that would block the infection. So they're talking about five years, possibly sooner. Uh, and that would mean even just eventually getting rid of all those terrible pesky common colds. Uh, so pretty amazing stuff. And it's one of uh, our own local people working on that uh, vaccinologist, Dr. Jamie Scott at SFU. And she, interestingly, I mean, this is something that people don't always uh, remember. She was saying that the vaccine, any vaccine, it fully leaves your body. The, a lot of the anti-vaxxers think that the vaccine stays in you forever. But what happens is the vaccine leaves your body and your body remembers the immune response. It kind of like has a memory for it. And then the antibodies neutralize the virus. So the antibodies, which we get from vaccines, is just part of the picture. She told me the other very important part is our body's T-cell response. Here she is talking about that. So even if you get infected, if you've got a really great T-cell response, well, it won't let it get too far, essentially. Antibody protection isn't the only way you're you're protected. You, you really need a good T cell response as well. They go around and they kill infected cells. So you can imagine if you've got good T cell immunity, how, how much that's going to protect your lungs and other parts of your body and just knock back that infection while the antibodies are working too to block the virus from infecting cells. Okay, that is so, so interesting. It is. So it's vaccine working with your T cells, which are constantly always scanning your body all the time to destroy infected cells. And T cells, they kill, they kill viruses. They also kill cancer. So T cell function is something that we can actually all improve uh, through exercise, sleep, and getting rid of stress. No big deal, right? Yeah, so simple. <laughs> so t- That's all yeah. thanks. T 
cells and vaccines work together to make what SFU vaccinologist Dr. Jamie Scott says, immunological memory. And she explains it here. So let's say you get vaccinated and a year later uh, you uh, get infected. If you've got good immunological memory, you're going to slam that virus. Uh, It might take a little bit for you to make a, you know, to jack up your antibody response again. And you can see that in people that have these breakthrough infections. As a matter of fact, I had a breakthrough infection. I didn't even know I had, I didn't even know I was infected. And as I'm about to arrive in, you know, Germany, I get an email that I've got, I've got a SARS-CoV-2 infection. I'm like, what? Because all I had was a headache for one day, you know, it was ridiculous. My husband went around the corner and bought, um, you know, a couple of uh, tests because we were wondering if I, I, I had infected him. And we took the antigen test and we took three of them. And like, I know how to run an, an assay. I mean, that's what we did in my lab for God knows how many years uh, with vaccine responses. <laughs> and I was negative. So the point is, is that when you have a breakthrough infection, you are so freaking protected. It's unbelievable by the vaccine. And that's what people, you know, that's why they say, you know, 90% of the people in the hospital uh, never got vaccinated. And the few who do, uh, you know, that's a tiny subset of the vaccinated population now. So, so, and why it's it's because I've got really great T cell responses and I've got, you know, I had a lagging antibody response probably, but that's okay because it, it picked right back up. And now I've probably got an antibody response that's 10 times better than your average Joe that, that, uh, that got vaccinated. People who've been infected and then wait six to eight months and then get vaccinated, boom, they've got great immunological memory. The body is amazing. It really is. So she's talking there about how your body remembers the vaccine. It remembers fighting it and making your body better. So, you know, literally a scientist who knows how to protect herself uh, as best as she can against the virus, and she still got it. But she says there that with a breakthrough infection, she didn't have much more than just a headache. And her body was doing a great job of fighting it off. So I just found that really interesting. And it really hit home for me that we need to be following the science around this and not just uh, personal anecdotes on people's Facebook pages that uh, steer us off course. Well, that's very well put because that that kind of is what is going on out there, right? And it's interesting, too, that she talked about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Yeah, she did. So she said uh, that delaying the time between doses has been shown to be quite effective. Here she is talking about it. Or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that one-shot vaccine, they've shown that if you wait six to eight months and then get vaccinated again, boom, you've got a huge amount of more protection. Whereas when they were doing it just a month later, you didn't see any change in protection. It took that long to allow the immune memory to strengthen and evolve and also for the antibody response to wear off so that when you got vaccinated the second time, it didn't just get cleared out before it initiated a good immune response. My feeling is, and I think that's why Tony Fauci, for instance, is going, yeah, you get a third vaccine eight months later, you're going to have a hell of a uh, good um, and more, much more long lasting protection. Uh, this is such fascinating stuff there. So yeah, she's got it all going on. 
<laughs> yeah, we're lucky because uh, she, she's an SFU vaccinologist, but she has been following um, a lot of these research papers and involved in reviewing them. Um, and she also spoke about how we didn't understand initially how effective getting these, uh, like the time between, the delay between your first and your second dose was, but kind of it's been shown that the longer delays between those doses it, cre- it increases the effectiveness in, in your body. Wow. Our bodies are incredible, Simi. It's like we're training them with these vaccines to, to fight off the uh, viruses. Amazing. Raji, thank you. Thanks so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Good morning. I'm just weighing in on uh, sick days. My work is horrible with or without COVID. We get three sick days a year. That's it. I was diagnosed with cancer. I had to use one of my sick days. And then I had to stay home after that because I was very upset and scared for my life. And I had to get, I had to take time off without pay because I'd already used about my three sick days for the year. Uh, I feel this is horrible and something needs to be done about it. Oh my goodness. I cannot even believe that poor lady had to go through that. I am so sorry to hear that. And I really hope she was able to find a better job because you should, no employer that treats you that way deserves your time unbelievable. But paid sick leave is a huge issue for so many people. It is in the spotlight once again. We heard about this from the report from the BC Seniors Advocate yesterday. She said, you know, care homes with weaker paid sick leave policies are at risk for larger COVID outbreaks. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Mike Schilling, President and CEO of Community Savings at Credit Union. Mike, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, Simi. Good morning. How much of it, like, how passionate are you about this issue? Why do you think paid sick leave is so important? Well, I, I think you just said it all, Simi. It's um, any normal person when they hear stories like that is is disgusted. Um, you know, I, I have better benefits than that. I'm sure. I'm sure the people you work with do too. Um, and you know, our members at Community Savings uh, agree. Um, and and I think the issue is this isn't only an issue now for those workers. This, this impacts us all because what's been proven over this pandemic is forcing sick people to go into work makes us all more likely to get sick. And, and unfortunately, in this pandemic, that can lead to the very worst of outcomes. And what have you been doing at Community Savings Credit Union then? And is that standard policy or did it change during COVID? Um, yeah, well, we did change up. So we do provide um, 10 days paid sick leave to, to all of our staff. Um, um, in, in addition to the paid vacation and, and things like that they get. During, uh, during the, this pandemic, we basically recognised that if people were sick, we wanted them to stay at home. Um, we didn't want them to come in um, and make other people sick. We wanted them to do their duty, if you like, and stay at home. So we said, you've got unlimited paid sick leave if you need to self-isolate because of COVID. You're doing the right thing. You're doing everyone else a favour, and we're going to support you doing that. And uh, for us, that was a very common sense, very easy decision to make. I was reading your piece in the province newspaper that you wrote about this, about mm-hmm. you know fixing BC's unequal, as you put it, tiered pay structure for long-term healthcare workers. Why did you feel yeah. the need to speak out? Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is these are these are rights that these workers who care for us and care for our elderly people. These are rights that people used to have, and they got taken away. Um, And why did they get taken away? They didn't get taken away to make us safer or make our elderly people um, better cared for. They got taken away to make someone else some some money. And and I think we've all we've all had enough of that. Um, None of us want to put one of our relatives or none of us when we um, it's time for us to be cared for. None of us want to be 
cared for in that way. We want to be cared for in a safe way um, and we want the rest of British Columbia to be safe. And, and this report has, has, has really made that obvious. I think this report is excellent and it's made it obvious that this is the right thing to do um, for everyone. And what do you think, Mike, what stops businesses from having that attitude or, or doing that for their employees? Um, well, you know, there's a money motive here, obviously, that um, the, the, the more the more benefits and, and better pay that you give to people, the harder it is to make the bottom line. So, you know, and that's the reality of the world we live in, um, which is why we need rules and we need legislation and we need unions, which is basically workers coming together to, to bargain for their rights. Um, you know, we need these things. But um, I think the other thing as well is, you know, over time, complacency um, comes in and, and this pandemic um, as awful as it has been, we need to we need to take the learning moments from it. We need to make some changes. Um, and you remember, uh, you remember early on in the pandemic, we all used to come out at seven o'clock and applaud these workers, um, and that went away. And and I think it'd be a real shame. I think shame on us if we don't follow through on that gratitude that we had. They were there for us when we needed it, um, and we applauded them. But we need to do more than clap. Um, we need to support them to get fair pay and fair benefits. And, um, and like I said, these rights that they used to have that got taken away. What is the 701 movement? Yeah, so we, we run the 701 movement talking about that seven o'clock applause that we all participated in. And, and we, asked, we, we were asking British Columbians, OK, well, what do you do at one minute past seven when the clapping has stopped? And we were challenging British Columbians to say, well, maybe what you need to do is write your, take, take a few minutes, send an email to your MP or your MLA. Um, send a message of support on social media to say, well, actually, we can do better. Um, you know, the way I see it, if this was a Hollywood movie, these carers would be the stars of the movie. These would be the Scarlett Johansson's and maybe the Ryan Reynolds would be working in there. These are the real superstars of the pandemic. And we need to remember that um, because I, I, for one, hope that next time something like this happens, they'll still be there supporting us all. OK, so you want people to sign on. How can they do that? Um, well, yeah, we run the 701 movement. We, 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 can, we, we can put that website back up, actually. We, we, we took it down at some point, but I'd love to have a resurgence of that. But I think it's get on your social media, um, go on to the 701movement.org, um, speak to your MLA, speak to your friends, and just say, we need to do better for these people. These people were there for us when we needed them. Are we going to be there for them? Are we going to do more than just clap? at seven o'clock are we gonna are we gonna say these people deserve a uh, th- these very basic rights that they used to have and got taken away well that is the irony of it right like you, in the environment today we've seen protests and things at hospitals and yet those people who are protesting if they got sick that hospital is where they're going to end up well yeah i mean it's just ridiculous isn't it i think we're all shaking our head in disbelief at some of the some of the behaviors here but you know the, the, the reality is that is a minority we did some research at the beginning of this pandemic, and nine out of 10 British Columbians recognised that these people are essential. Um, eight out of 10 British Columbians supported fairer pay and levelled up pay for them. So actually, the, the, you know, those people protesting out of a, they're the minority. The vast majority of the British Columbians are smart people. They, 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 they appreciate what these people have done and they want to support them. That's the fact. Right. How extensive do you think paid sick leave should be for everybody? Um, well, you know, I, 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 would you want one of your relatives dragging themselves into work um, if they were sick? Would you want one of your colleagues doing that? Absolutely not. I think, you know, that we, we've got, um, there's a call here for 18 days sick leave. I think that's appropriate in this sector. Um, there's also a call for 10 days paid sick leave um, right across the province for everybody. And again, I, I don't think that's too much to ask. I, I, I think if I was sick, um, I want to concentrate on getting myself better. I, I don't want to go and make my colleagues sick um, and I don't have to worry about paying the bills. Um, or putting food on the table um, just because I've fallen sick. That is true. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Amy. Have a great day.